feel fairly confident today that at least some folks in the congregation will be familiar with the expression, it is better to wear out than to rust out. Now, I believe that most of us would agree that we would choose to remain active and healthy and moving forward in great spunk and vigor uh, rather than wasting away in life. Well, the man who coined that phrase actually lived it as well. The author of our hymn this morning, Henry F. White. He was born in Scotland on June 1st, 1793. He was educated at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, and was a member of the Church of England uh, all of his life. He was also an Anglican pastor. Now, through most, most of his life, he battled tuberculosis. And he had a frail body at times, a difficult time in life, but he was known as a man strong in spirit and faith. The last 23 years of his life, he pastored a poor parish among fishing people in Devonshire, England. His inspiration for writing the hymn of today, Abide With Me, came shortly before his final sermon while reading from the account in Luke 24 of our Lord's appearance with the two disciples on their seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus on the evening of his resurrection. When we take a look at this, the context of the words we're going to be looking at today, we're not going to read the entire passage, but the context of this song, Abide With Me, is found in Luke 24, and it does tell the story of Jesus. The first evening of his resurrection, he finds two disciples, Only one of them is named by the name of Cleopas. They're making a seven-walk journey from Jerusalem to the little town of Emmaus. And they are in distress. They're in pain. They're hurting desperately. And Jesus just walks up beside them. And for reasons the Bible does not explain, they are kept from recognizing him. Uh, I believe that God, in his great purpose, kept them from understanding who it was. And he asks them, what's the matter? What are they talking about? And one of them turns to him and says, are you the only person in all of Judea who doesn't know what has been happening in Jerusalem? And someone has pointed out, even in his resurrection, Jesus had a sense of humor. They're talking about everything that happened to him. And he looks at them and says, well, what things? And so they say, the one that we believe to be Messiah was taken by his enemies and they, would, they beat him and they, they killed him and our hope is gone. And at that point, Jesus begins to rebuke them. Now they said there were some women who said he, he's come back to life, but they don't know what to think, they don't understand. He is not rebuking them because they don't believe the testimony. He rebukes them because their hearts are not where they need to be and they are not listening to God. Now, because of light's failing health progressively worsening, he was forced to seek a warmer climate in Italy. So his very last sermon for his parishioners was on September 4th, 1847, 
shortly after he wrote the words to our hymn. And it is recorded he was so frail, he nearly had to crawl into the pulpit. But listen to what his final words to his people were. It is in my desire to induce you to prepare for the solemn hour which must come to all by a timely appreciation and dependence on the death of Christ. You need to be ready. You need to be walking with the Lord. So on his way to Rome, he was overtaken by death at Nice, France, and was buried there in an English cemetery, November 20th, 1847. So we're going to pick up with the story right after Christ has rebuked them and what he has to say to them from the Word of God. So we will be looking today at Luke 24, 27 through 32. Would you stand? And the scripture says that, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. That stay with me, abide with me, should be our daily prayer. We are facing a world of pain and sorrow, a world of uncertainty and fear. We also have in our world joy and hope. But we need to seek the Lord so that we might make it through. So today I'm encouraging you to ask the Lord, abide with me. Understand, I'm not suggesting He is somehow absent from your life. I'm not saying you don't have the Lord in your life. So what do I mean by asking, stay with us, abide with us, remain with us? Well, we're going to take a look at the passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at some meanings to that phrase, abide with me, or stay with me, implied in our text. So let's join together and take a look. Very first thing, to ask Jesus to abide with us is to be willing to learn His truth. Be willing to learn. Now, the disciples did not understand what was happening. We know all of the facts, so we get it. But after he's rebuked them, where is your heart? You don't know what the Word of God has said. After sharing their grief with Jesus, the disciples listened to him expound the Word. He's going to tell them what the Scripture says. We're told with Moses and the prophets and all of the Scriptures. Now clearly, Jesus didn't have time in a seven-mile walk to go through every passage of Scripture, what this text is saying is throughout the Word of God, the Word is pointing to Christ 
saying what's going to happen in God's plan of redemption. And he's sharing with them. Because they're at a loss to understand. They don't get what has happened. They, they like the twelve, believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, and now he's been taken away from him. There are reports that he's come back to life. But they just don't know what to think. And so it has them flummoxed. It has them upset. They're frustrated. And, and they want some kind of answers. So as he is talking throughout the Word, taking them in different passages of Scripture, they point to the reality that Jesus had to die in order for salvation to be made possible. They are eagerly listening. They are hanging on each word. And later on, as, remember, as they realize who He is, they're looking at each other and said, there was something different when He was talking to us. Our hearts were warmed by what he had to say as they heard the word from the one John calls the word, their hearts somehow are struggling to find hope. Folks, I believe that it is within the word of God that we find a relationship that brings hope into our lives. Everything that happens to you and me in this life, we need to judge by what we call the Word of God. Rather than trying to make the Word fit our experience the way we want, we need to see what does the Word tell us about times of struggle and pain? How does the Word tell us we experience times of joy and peace? We need to look at the Word Because it is within that word that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. We call it the revelation of God. And that is what it is. And so it is within the word we can come to know that God loves us. Even when we can't see it, that God cares. Even when we don't understand what that will is, we know that He's guiding us and is working all things together for our good. Those who love God, called according to His purpose. And so today, as we take a look at this passage, what I'm asking for us, let us open our hearts completely to the Word of God. Holding nothing back, God, here I am. Speak to my heart. Speak plainly truthfully, powerfully. It's the prayer of David when he, in Psalm 139, he says, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. We need to open our hearts asking God to use the word to search our hearts. And I know I've said this a lot. I've been with you now going on 13 years. And you hear me talk about the importance of the word a lot. But folks, I'm not sure we have ever been at a moment in our country where we need to take that more seriously than right now. I have shared with you my concern that we are a nation of biblical illiterates. People even who profess faith in Christ don't know the Word. And that has become incredibly clear this last week in one of the most disturbing things I as a pastor, as a Christian, have ever read. A survey was done entitled The State of Theology, and it's looking at our country. 
It was released by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. And folks, get ready. If you have a strong connection to the Word of God, you're about to be broken hearted. It was specifically looking not only at our country and people in general, a very focused part of this survey, what is the state of theology among evangelicals? People who say, I'm a Christian, I love God, I read the Word, I go to all the things that we say. Now listen to this. One-fourth of evangelicals said in this survey, a blind kind of survey, so they were free to tell the truth. One-fourth of evangelicals do not believe that the Bible is literally true. They're saying it's a good book. It has good things to tell us. But, for instance, it would be the story of Jonah couldn't happen because a man can't be swallowed by a fish. We don't believe a lot of what the Bible tells us are simply parables and pictures and explanations. One-fourth of evangelicals. One-half of evangelicals. Actually, a a nudge over a half. 56% affirmed God accepts worship of all religions including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, in 2020, the number was still high, 42%. But it's now 56%. Now, we have a big problem here, don't we? Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And now, over half of people professing to be evangelicals are saying, there are many roads to God. Since that is their perception... This next one, folks, this was a weeping moment for me this week. 73% agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This is one of the earliest heresies the church had to deal with. It's called Arianism. Arius said, Jesus was a little God little G-God, the first creation. Now, 73% no longer will affirm that Jesus truly is God very, or or Jesus is an eternal being. It's not surprising. 43% then went on to say, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Folks, 43% of people who identify as evangelicals, Jesus is not God. And then 60% well, if they've got, if they got the G- Jesus wrong, this isn't going to be surprising. 60% said of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a force, but it's not a personal being. And then what about us? 57% agree. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Denying the concept of original sin and total depravity. Now I know, and we have to acknowledge, not everybody that says, I'm a Christian, is a Christian. The Word of God reflects this. I've told you the scariest passage of Scripture in all of God's Word is when a group of people will say, Jesus, we cast out 
demons in your name. We worked miracles in your name. We did all of this stuff. And he will say to me, them, depart from me. I never knew you. I understand. But when we look at surveys that say somewhere around 75% in our nation say they believe in God, all of a sudden, this gets truncated desperately. A lot of people in a lot of churches have denied the very basic tenets of our faith. And if this doesn't disturb you, I don't know what else I can say to point out our need for awakening. We must affirm our commitment to the Word of God. And when I say that, I'm not asking you to say, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I'm asking you to open it, to read it, to study it, to apply it into your life and to see what God would have you to say and be and do in this world. It can't be something we open on Sundays and ignore the rest of the week. We've got to be committed. These men, even not knowing who Jesus was in the providence of God, are listening to the Word, expound the Word, so that their lives will have hope and meaning and life. To ask Jesus to abide with us, I'm willing to listen to your word, Lord. I'm willing to hear what it says, even when it's tough. And then, to ask Jesus to abide with us is to urgently invite His presence to be real in our lives. To urgently invite Him, Lord, make Yourself real in who I am. I want to know You. As they get to Emmaus, a seven-mile trip, Jesus acts like he's going to go on. Now, I don't think he's pretending. I think what happened in the next few minutes was contingent on their asking Jesus to come. Christ wanted them to invite him. And so upon arrival at Emmaus, the disciples pled for Jesus to stay with them. When it says, remain with us, abide with us, the force of that is they're compelling him. Come in. Now, part of it is hospitality. Starting to get dark. It's dangerous to walk the roads in the dark in that day. So part of it has to do, we're being good hosts like we're supposed to be, come in. But there's more than that here. They were moved by what he said. We know that. And they wanted to hear more. So they're saying, come, sit with us, be at meal with us, stay with us. They don't know who he is yet. All they know is we want to hear more. And we need you to be with us. Apparently even before they recognized him, The Spirit of God is taking all the things He is saying and moving it within their hearts and causing them to have this deep desire to know more about what's happening. So when we look at this and we see them saying, come in, stay with us, and the urgency of that, please abide with us. Don't go any further. 
come in. And in all likelihood, one of them, it's their house. This is probably not an inn. Uh, they invite him in, and it becomes a powerful moment. Well, you and I, we need to realize he is always with us. And we, we seem to know this to some degree. At least we talk about Jesus is with us. He lives in us. He walks with us. He, he moves with us. We, we understand the heart of that. But we're being called into a deeper realization of that truth. Even more important, we need to come to the place we want Him to be with us. I've talked about before. I, I've been in houses, in homes. When I went in, it was very clear that I was a guest and had a limited amount of their time. I walked into homes. I, I don't know that this is a practice anymore, and if it's your practice, I apologize. But I've walked into homes where virtually every piece of furniture is covered in plastic. Where the, the, the coffee table looks like nothing has ever been on it except some magazines. And just the demeanor of the host was, okay, get your business suit and go. And I've walked into other homes where I felt free if I so desired to kick my shoes off, put my feet on the coffee table, and just be at home. It's one thing to say, Jesus, you're with me. Something entirely different to want him to be with you. Every step of the journey. We know that he's with us, but please hear this. Jesus needs to be infinitely more than a tag-along in our lives. What do I mean by that? I was the youngest for 18 years in my family. And when we were little, my sisters absolutely hated the idea that I had to go with them. In fact, on more than one occasion, they left me behind. When I was with them, it wasn't, come on, Danny, we're going to go have fun. Sometimes that's the way we treat Jesus. It's got to be more than a vague idea that he's with us. We need to consciously begin recognizing and welcoming him in our lives. In your worship folder, you have a, one of the quotes from Brother Lawrence from his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, one of the greatest devotional books ever written. And it was, it was brought together by people who loved him after his death. Lawrence said, there is not in the world a kind of life more sweet and more delightful than that of a continual walk with God. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience it. Yet I do not advise you to do it from that motive. It is not pleasure that we ought to seek in this ex exercise, but let us do it from the motive of love and because God would have us so walk. Folks, Lawrence is saying the most wonderful life on earth is a life that is walking in awareness. God is with me. Christ is with me. But don't do it because it'll make you feel bubbly and good. Do it because you love the Lord. 
You want Him to be with you. And you want to recognize Him. And you want to know Him. And you're embracing Him. Be with me, Jesus. I want you to walk with me. All day long. And let me be aware of your presence. And then, this is where it is coming to a beautiful climax. To ask Jesus to abide with us is to actively seek fellowship with Him. Not just recognizing you're with me, Jesus, but Jesus, I want this to be a moment of life. This is such a poignant moment. This is such a beautiful moment in the life of these men. Jesus comes into the house. He's the guest. And somehow, maybe because of hospitality, maybe the owner of the home has said, would you please act as host? Because the breaking of the bread and the blessing that would come would would be the act of the host of the meal. I joke because frequently when I'm out in public with church people, and we're out at a meal, and it comes time to pray, I have had everybody turn and look at me. You're the preacher. You're supposed to pray. So it's kind of exciting. I don't always, in, I don't always volunteer. And it is fun for other people to pray every once in a while. So this may be simply, you have been teaching us, and this is great. Here, we don't know how. But Jesus takes over. And in the breaking of bread, the disciples' eyes were opened. They are finally allowed to see and understand who He is. Now Luke doesn't explain why or how that happened. Some of it suggested it was the way He prayed. As disciples of Christ, they probably heard Him pray a lot. So maybe it was the way he prayed and it was so moving and so powerful. Maybe it was simply the act of breaking the bread. Now we know these men were not in the upper room on the night that the Lord's Supper was instituted, but perhaps they were among the crowd when Jesus fed the 5,000 and they got to see him break bread and something. They, they've seen this and they're familiar with it. And others have said, no, probably what happened when he broke the bread, they finally see the nail prints in his hand. The truth, we don't know how God opened their eyes right at this moment. We don't know that it was anything they saw, anything that brought them familiarity, anything that said, wait a minute, I know this guy. God opens their eyes. We don't know how and we don't know why, but we know the context. The context of their eyes being open was in an intimate act of fellowship. And now you know you're thinking, well, they're just eating a meal. Well, folks, think about the people you want around your table. Think about people you want to go out and spend time with at a meal. They're people you love, aren't they? They're people with whom you have friendships. They're people with whom you have connections. 
even in our culture, which is far from Eastern hospitality, we have a sense the table is a very special place. And one of the ways that becomes clearest is if you're in one of those eating establishments that had just have benches, and sometimes you have to sit next to somebody you've never met, or if you're on a cruise or you're on a train trip and you're in the dining car, and if now if you're a boisterous extrovert who loves meeting people, that's okay. But there are a lot of people that does not define. And even among some extroverts, yeah, we'll start a conversation, but it's going to be kept at a shallow level. One of the ways I know I'm really with people I love, I can say things with a degree of honesty that would shock a whole lot of people if I told them. I know you you find that hard to believe, but some of you have been with me at those moments. You've heard some of my comments at a meal, and you've heard some of my jokes, and you've heard some of my stories. They're with a man, and they have said, we want to hear everything you have to say. Join with us in this meal. An intimate act of fellowship. If they did not have a hunger for God, they would have let him go on his way. But we want you to be with us right now. We need you to be with us right now. So please, come and sit. I believe that we have a hunger deep within that cannot be filled until we walk in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. There's something in our hearts as followers of Christ that will always be a little off-center if we are not openly seeking fellowship with our Lord. Augustine of Hippo, in this incredibly wonderful book, The Confessions, right at the front, book one, makes this statement. And he's talking about here human beings in general. You stir us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. What was he saying? There's something missing in the human heart that can only be filled by God. And people cannot know peace in their lives, the truest sense of peace, until they have come to know the God who created them. Now, if that is true about the human heart in general, how much more equally true is it within our lives as followers of Christ? There is a deeper longing within the heart of every true believer because we have tasted the wonder of the Lord. We have known His peace. We have known His joy. We have known the cleansing power of forgiveness He brings into our lives. And so when we have allowed that relationship to to widen because we've lost sight of Him, we've lost intimacy with Him, we begin to ache in ways we may not even know what it is. I've talked to you, I believe that followers of Christ have homesickness in their lives. 
It doesn't take me long to look at the world in which I'm living and I realize I don't belong here. This isn't what I was created to be. This isn't what I was redeemed to be. And there's something more than this world that lives without Christ. So, the knowledge that we are meant to walk with God, that can be part of that disquiet. Sometimes we just feel like hamsters in a little wheel, running and running and running. Accomplishing nothing. Our life doesn't mean much. I told you I worked 11 years in retail. I used to really enjoy it, but toward the end, I'm marking a case of oil, ruining one more time because when I worked for Walmart, you had to wear a tie even marking oil. And I'm marking oil, and literally in my brain, a chimpanzee could be taught to do this. And all of a sudden, Walmart didn't seem like a significant job. However the longing manifests itself in you, there is something missing when we allow our sin, our willfulness, our own desires to somehow push Jesus to the side. We don't want Him gone. We just don't want Him bothering us. And what we don't understand, that hunger is expressing we want to experience more of the One who gave Himself for us. We want. There's a a desire that can't be satisfied until we're saying, I want to know Jesus. Really know Him. Paul expressed this to the Philippians in Chapter 3, he's just gone through a list of all of his accomplishments. And he said, this man who wrote the vast majority of our New Testament, I want to know Christ. Get that. At the end of his life, Paul is saying, I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul is saying, the one thing I want most in this life, I want to know Jesus at the most important depths I can. He says, I haven't arrived there yet. Paul was saying, there's more about Jesus I need to know. And it was his heart. Remember the old song we used to sing, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love Him more and more. That should be our hearts. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want it to be part of my life. And for us to know that kind of intimate relationship with Christ, we must seek to cultivate that intimacy. I performed a wedding last night. The bride was a granddaughter of a couple uh, folks at the Nicholson Church. I buried both of her grandparents. I sat with them through various tragedies and surgeries and stuff. Twelve years, I'd come to know these people very well. And when Taylor asked if I'd do her wedding, I thought I would love to do something happy for this family. And I warned them in premarital counseling. We have a couple here who have been that, through that with me. That relationships have a natural 
tendency to pull apart. And that if you want the relationship to remain valid, you have to keep going back and restoring that relationship. It's the same way with God. The hunger that is in you, that little thing that you may not be able to put a, your finger on, something's missing, that hunger compels us. Seek His face. Come to know Him. And that hunger will not be met until we're willing to take time to open up our hearts to God. We will never realize what is ours unless we avail ourselves His love. In Psalm 63.8, the psalmist writes a beautiful statement. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Some translations say, I follow you closely and you will sustain me. The King James Version I just absolutely love the phrase. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. I am coming to you with everything in me. I am clinging to you. I'm following you. I'm giving it every... And this is a wonderful thing. Christ is already here. But the Word of God calls us over and over again, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. He's here, but come after Him. Seek Him. Love Him. And the psalmist was declaring that he was going to cling to God with all of his might, with all of his heart. This idea found an amazing contemporary expression in the words of Keith Green. I've mentioned Green a lot. He's one of those people when I need a good talking to, even though he died many years ago in a tragic accident, I put on his music and God speaks to me. In a live concert, you can catch this song on YouTube in the live concert. Green was sitting at the piano and he said, on Monday night I wrote a letter to the Lord. I didn't know where to mail it so I put it in my Bible. And I asked him, Lord, you've got to do something about my heart. You know, it's been a long time since I met you, and it's starting to harden up, which is kind of natural, but I want to have baby skin. Lord, I I want to have a skin-like baby in my heart. It's getting kind of hard and calloused. It's not because of things I'm doing, but it's about things I'm not doing. And he told the congregation, I I stayed up until about 2 o'clock in the morning writing this song. Now, the words I'm about to share with you are a little different than the song you've come to know, because you do know this song. But I've never found a recording other than the live concert. This is within a week of writing the song. He hasn't polished it up or anything. And I I absolutely think, for me, it's the most beautiful part. The most beautiful verse. Oh Lord, You're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. O Lord, my body's tired, but
But you keep reminding me of many holy, tireless men who spilt their blood for thee. I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first help me just to live it, Lord. And if I'm doing good, help me to never make a sound except to give all of the glory to You. O Lord, my faith is small and I need a touch from You. Your book of books lies undisturbed. And the prayers from me to you. O Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that's fueled with holy fear. I want to take your word and shine it all around. But first help me just to live it, Lord. And when I'm doing good, help me to never make a sound except to give all of the glory to you. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. For when your eyes are on this child, your grace abounds to me. I think this song was spoken well to the heart of Henry Light. These words, Abide with me, fast falls the even tide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When others, helpers fail and comforts flee. Help of the helpless, Lord, abide with me. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus would have understood those pleas. With their hope gone, Jesus came and restored it to them. Light in his struggles through life found Jesus to be a present help in trouble. That a bride in Christ carried Henry Light through a painful life into glory. Today, my prayer for you is that you will actively seek Christ's presence in this life. Perhaps this morning your heart has been warmed as you think about the presence of Jesus. You long to sit at His feet to learn His truth. You want to spend time in the fellowship with Him. If that be true, 